Chapter Fourteen of Son of Tarzan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Son of Tarzan by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Chapter Fourteen. With wide eyes fixed upon him, like a trapped creature horrified beneath the mesmeric gaze of a great serpent, the girl watched the approach of the man. Her hands were free, the Swedes having secured her with a length of ancient slave-chain fastened at one end to an iron collar padlocked about her neck and at the other to a long stake driven deep into the ground. Slowly Miriam shrank inch by inch toward the opposite end of the tent. Malbin followed her. His hands were extended, and his fingers half-opened, claw-like, to seize her. His lips were parted, and his breath came quickly, pantingly. The girl recalled Jensen's instructions to call him should Malbin molest her, but Jensen had gone into the jungle to hunt. Malbin had chosen his time well. Yet she screamed, loud and shrill, once, twice, a third time, before Malbin could leap across the tent and throttle her alarming cries with his brute fingers. Then she fought him, as any jungle she might fight, with tooth and nail. The man found her no easy prey. In that slender young body, beneath the rounded curves and the fine soft skin, lay the muscles of a young lioness. But Malbin was no weakling. His character and appearance were brutal, nor did they belie his brawn. He was of giant stature and of giant strength. Slowly he forced the girl back upon the ground, striking her in the face when she hurt him badly, either with teeth or nails. Miriam struck back, but she was growing weaker from the choking fingers at her throat. Out in the jungle Jensen had brought down two bucks. His hunting had not carried him far afield, nor was he prone to permit it to do so. He was suspicious of Malbin. The very fact that his companion had refused to accompany him, and elected instead to hunt alone in another direction, would not, under ordinary circumstances, have seemed fraught with sinister suggestion. But Jensen knew Malbin well, and so, having secured meat, he turned immediately back toward camp, while his boys brought in his kill. He had covered about half the return journey when a scream came faintly to his ears from the direction of camp. He halted to listen. It was repeated twice, then silence. With a muttered curse Jensen broke into a rapid run. He wondered if he would be too late. What a fool Malbin was indeed to thus chance jeopardizing a fortune! Further away from camp than Jensen, and upon the opposite side, another heard Miriam's screams, a stranger who was not even aware of the proximity of white men other than himself, a hunter with a handful of sleek black warriors. He too listened intently for a moment. That the voice was that of a woman in distress he could not doubt, and so he also hastened at a run in the direction of the affrighted voice, but he was much further away than Jensen, so that the latter reached the tent first. What the Swede found there roused no pity within his calloused heart, only anger against his fellow scoundrel. Miriam was still fighting off her attacker. Malbin still was showering blows upon her. Jensen, streaming foul curses upon his erstwhile friend, burst into the tent. Malbin, interrupted, dropped his victim, and turned to meet Jensen's infuriated charge. He whipped a revolver from his hip, 
Jensen, anticipating the lightning move of the other's hand, drew almost simultaneously, and both men fired at once. Jensen was still moving toward Malbin at the time, but at the flash of the explosion he stopped. His revolver dropped from nerveless fingers. For a moment he staggered drunkenly. Deliberately Malbin put two more bullets into his friend's body at close range. Even in the midst of the excitement and her terror, Miriam found herself wondering at the tenacity of life which the hitman displayed. His eyes were closed, his head dropped forward upon his breast, his hands hung limply before him, yet still he stood there upon his feet, though he reeled horribly. It was not until the third bullet had found its mark within his body that he lunged forward upon his face. Then Malbin approached him, and with an oath kicked him viciously. Then he returned once more to Miriam. Again he seized her, and at the same instant the flaps of the tent opened silently, and a tall white man stood in the aperture. Neither Miriam or Malbin saw the newcomer. The latter's back was toward him, while his body hid the stranger from Miriam's eyes. He crossed the tent quickly, stepping over Jensen's body. The first intimation Malbin had that he was not to carry out his design without further interruption was a heavy hand upon his shoulder. He wheeled to face an utter stranger, a tall, black-haired, gray-eyed stranger, clad in khaki and pith helmet. Malbin reached for his gun again, but another hand had been quicker than his, and he saw the weapon tossed to the ground at the side of the tent, out of reach. "'What is the meaning of this?' The stranger addressed his question to Miriam in a tongue she did not understand. She shook her head and spoke in Arabic. Instantly the man changed his question to that language. "'These men are taking me away from Korak,' explained the girl. "'This one would have harmed me. The other whom he had just killed tried to stop him. They were both very bad men, but this one is the worse. If my Korak were here he would kill him. I suppose you are like them, so you will not kill him.' The stranger smiled. "'He deserves killing,' he said. "'There is no doubt of that.' Once I should have killed him, but not now. I will see, though, that he does not bother you any more. He was holding Malbin in a grasp the giant Swede could not break, though he struggled to do so, and he was holding him as easily as Malbin might have held a little child. Yet Malbin was a huge man, mightily thewed. The Swede began to rage and curse. He struck at his captor only to be twisted about and held at arm's length. Then he shouted to his boys to come and kill the stranger. In response, a dozen strange blacks entered the tent. They, too, were powerful, clean-limbed men, not at all like the mangy crew that followed the Swedes. "'We have had enough foolishness,' said the stranger to Malbin. "'You deserve death, but I am not the law. I know now who you are. I have heard of you before. You and your friend here bear a most unsavory reputation.' We do not want you in our country. I shall let you go this time, but should you ever return, I shall take the law into my own hands. You understand? Malbin blustered and threatened, finishing by applying a most uncomplimentary name to his captor. For this he received a shaking that rattled his teeth. Those who know say that the most painful punishment that can be inflicted upon an adult male, short of injuring him, is a good old-fashioned shaking. Malbin received such a shaking. "'Now get out,' said the stranger, "'and next time you see me remember who I am. 
and he spoke a name in the Swede's ear, a name that more effectually subdued the scoundrel than many beatings. Then he gave him a push that carried him bodily through the tent doorway to sprawl upon the turf beyond. Now, he said, turning toward Miriam, who has the key to this thing about your neck? The girl pointed to Jensen's body. He carried it always, he said. The stranger searched the clothing on the corpse until he came upon the key. A moment more Miriam was free. Will you let me go back to my Korak? she asked. I will see that you are returned to your people, he replied. Who are they, and where is their village? He had been eyeing her strange, barbaric garmenture wonderingly. From her speech she was evidently an Arab girl, but he had never before seen one thus clothed. "'Who are your people?' "'Who is Korak?' he asked again. "'Korak! Why, Korak is an ape! I have no other people. Korak and I live in the jungle alone since Ahut went to be king of the apes.' She had always thus pronounced Akut's name, for so it had sounded to her when first she came with Korak and the ape. Korak could have been kind, but he would not. A questioning expression entered the stranger's eyes. He looked at the girl closely. So Korak is an ape, he said, and what prey are you? I am Miriam. I also am an ape. Hmm, was the stranger's only oral comment upon this startling announcement. But what he thought might have been partially interpreted through the pitying light that entered his eyes. He approached the girl and started to lay his hand upon her forehead. She drew back with a savage little growl. A smile touched his lips. "'You need not fear me,' he said. "'I shall not harm you. I only wish to discover if you have fever, if you are entirely well. If you are, we will set forth in search of Korak.' Miriam looked straight into the keen gray eyes. She must have found there an unquestionable assurance of the honorableness of their owner for she permitted him to lay his palm upon her forehead and feel her pulse. Apparently she had no fever. "'How long have you been an ape?' asked the man. "'Since I was a little girl, many, many years ago, and Korak came and took me from my father who was beating me. Since then I have lived in the trees with Korak and Eut.' "'Where in the jungle lives Korak?' asked the stranger." Miriam pointed with a sweep of her hand that took in generously half the continent of Africa. "'Could you find your way back to him?' "'I do not know,' she replied. "'But he will find his way to me.' "'Then I have a plan,' said the stranger. "'I live but a few marches from here. I shall take you home where my wife will look after you and care for you until we can find Korak, or Korak finds us.' If he could find you here, he can find you at my village. Is it not so? Miriam thought that it was so, but she did not like the idea of not starting immediately back to meet Korak. On the other hand, the man had no intention of permitting this poor, insane child to wander further amidst the dangers of the jungle. From whence she had come or what she had undergone he could not guess but that her Korak and their life among the apes was but a figment of a disordered mind he could not doubt. He knew the jungle well, and he knew that men have lived alone and naked among the savage beasts for years. But a frail and slender girl? No, it was not possible. Together they went outside. Malbin's boys were striking camp in preparation for a hasty departure. The stranger's blacks were conversing with them. 
Malbin stood at a distance, angry and glowering. The stranger approached one of his own men. "'Find out where they got this girl,' he commanded. The negro thus addressed questioned one of Malbin's followers. Presently he returned to his master. "'They bought her from old Ko Voodoo,' he said. "'That is all that this fellow will tell me. He pretends that he knows nothing more, and I guess that he does not. These two white men were very bad men. They did many things that their boys knew not the meanings of. It would be well, Buona, to kill the other.' I wish that I might, but a new law is come into this part of the jungle. It is not as it was in the old days, Muviri, replied the master. The stranger remained until Malbin and his safari had disappeared into the jungle toward the north. Miriam, trustful now, stood at his side, Geeka clutched in one slim brown hand. They talked together, the man wondering at the faltering Arabic of the girl but attributing it finally to her defective mentality. Could he have known that years had elapsed since she had used it until she was taken by the Swedes, he would not have wondered that she had half forgotten it. There was yet another reason why the language of the sheik had thus readily eluded her, but of that reason she herself could not have guessed the truth any better than could the man. He tried to persuade her to return with him to his village, as he called it, or duar in arabic but she was insistent upon searching immediately for korak as a last resort he determined to take her with him by force rather than sacrifice her life to the insane hallucination which haunted her but being a wise man he determined to humor her first and then attempt to lead her as he would have her go so when they took up their march it was in the direction of the south though his own ranch lay almost due east. By degrees he turned the direction of their way more and more eastward, and greatly was he pleased to note that the girl failed to discover that any change was being made. Little by little she became more trusting. At first she had had but her intuition to guide her belief that this big Tarmangani meant her no harm, but as the days passed and she saw that his kindness and consideration never faltered, she came to compare him with Korak and to be very fond of him. But never did her loyalty to her ape-man flag. On the fifth day they came suddenly upon a great plain, and from the edge of the forest the girl saw in the distance fenced fields and many buildings. At the sight she drew back in astonishment. "'Where are we?' she asked, pointing. "'We could not find Korak,' replied the man, "'and as our way led near my duar, "'I have brought you here to wait and rest with my wife "'until my men can find your ape, or he finds you. "'It is better thus, little one. "'You will be safer with us, and you will be happier.' "'I am afraid, Buona,' said the girl. "'In thy duar they will beat me as did the sheik, my father. "'Let me go back into the jungle.' There Korak will find me. He would not think to look for me in the duar of a white man. No one will beat you, child, replied the man. I have not done so, have I? Well, here all belong to me. They will treat you well. Here no one is beaten. My wife will be very good to you, and at last Korak will come, for I shall send men to search for him. The girl shook her head. They could not bring him, for he would kill them as all men have tried to kill him. I am afraid. Let me go, Buana. You do not know the way to your own country. You would be lost. 
The leopards or the lions would get you the first night, and after all you would not find your Korak. It is better that you stay with us. Did I not save you from the bad man? Do you not owe me something for that? Well, then, remain with us for a few weeks at least, until we can determine what is best for you. You are only a little girl. It would be wicked to permit you to go alone into the jungle. Miriam laughed. The jungle, she said, is my father and my mother. It has been kinder to me than have men. I am not afraid of the jungle, nor am I afraid of the leopard or the lion. When my time comes I shall die. It may be that a leopard or a lion shall kill me, or it may be a tiny bug no bigger than the end of my littlest finger. When the lion leaps upon me or the little bug stings me, I shall be afraid. Oh, then I shall be terribly afraid, I know. But life would be very miserable indeed were I to spend it in terror of the thing that has not yet happened. If it be the lion, my terror shall be short of life. But if it be the little bug, I may suffer for days before I die. And so I fear the lion least of all. He is great and noisy. I can hear him, or see him, or smell him in time to escape. But any moment I may place a hand or foot on the little bug, and never know that he is there until I feel his deadly sting. No, I do not fear the jungle. I love it. I should rather die than leave it forever. But your duar is close beside the jungle. You have been good to me. I will do as you wish, and remain here for a while to wait the coming of my Korak. Good, said the man, and he led the way down toward the flower-covered bungalow behind which lay the barns and outhouses of a well-ordered African farm. As they came nearer, a dozen dogs ran barking toward them, gaunt wolfhounds, a huge Great Dane, a nimble-footed collie, and a number of yapping, quarrelsome fox-terriers. At first their appearance was savage and unfriendly in the extreme, but once they recognized the foremost black warriors and the white man behind them, their attitude underwent a remarkable change. The collie and the fox-terriers became frantic with delirious joy, and while the wolfhounds and the great Dane were not a whit less delighted at the return of their master, their greetings were of a more dignified nature. Each in turn sniffed at Miriam, who displayed not the slightest fear of any of them. The wolfhounds bristled and growled at the scent of wild beasts that clung to her garment, but when she laid her hand upon their heads and her soft voice murmured caressingly, they half closed their eyes, lifting their upper lips in contented canine smiles. The man was watching them, and he too smiled, for it was seldom that these savage brutes took thus kindly to strangers. It was as though in some subtle way the girl had breathed a message of kindred savagery to their savage hearts. With her slim fingers grasping the collar of a wolfhound upon either side of her, Miriam walked on toward the bungalow upon the porch of which a woman dressed in white waved a welcome to her returning lord. There was more fear in the girl's eyes now than there had been in the presence of strange men or savage beasts. She hesitated turning an appealing glance toward the man. "'This is my wife,' he said. "'She will be glad to welcome you.' The woman came down the path to meet them. The man kissed her, and, turning toward Miriam, introduced them, speaking in the Arab tongue the girl understood. "'This is Miriam, my dear,' he said. 
and he told the story of the jungle waif in so far as he knew it. Miriam saw that the woman was beautiful. She saw that sweetness and goodness were stamped indelibly upon her countenance. She no longer feared her, and when her brief story had been narrated, and the woman came and put her arms about her and kissed her and called her poor little darling, something snapped in Miriam's little heart. She buried her face on the bosom of this new friend, in whose voice was the mother tone that Miriam had not heard for so many years that she had forgotten its very existence. She buried her face on the kindly bosom and wept, as she had not wept before in all her life, tears of relief and joy that she could not fathom. And so came Miriam, the savage little Mangani, out of her beloved jungle into the midst of a home of culture and refinement. Already Buana and My Dear, as she first heard them called and continued to call them, were as father and mother to her. Once her savage fears allayed, she went to the opposite extreme of trustfulness and love. Now she was willing to wait here until they found Korak, or Korak found her. She did not give up that thought. Korak, her Korak, always was first. End of chapter 14